Greetings, ladies and men, gents, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space, where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your entertainment. This particular story is called Facial Hair and Horns, written by Captain Candy. I am reading this long in an admittedly confused state. Our human crew member, Stephen, has recently disappeared. He was always quite a quiet, laid-back fellow. He would laugh and joke with the rest of the crew and smile wider than anybody. At times he was a bit quiet or reserved, but his calm head always saved our asses when accounted. When crap hit the fan, as he would say it, he never panicked like the rest of us. He always got really, really calm found a path out for anyone involved. Recently, though, one of our crews seems to have angered him, though I don't think anger is the right word. Rather, Stephen seems calm like he always was in those panic-inducing incidents. Her crew member jeered at Stephen about his inability to grow facial hair, something previously joked about and Stephen would always just laugh it off and say it was a bad joke and that he'd heard it enough times. This time, when it was said, he reacted very differently. He was working on a plasma pump for the engine when the remark was made and he put down the pump part and rag that he was cleaning it off with. He silently, without a word, placed down his gloves, took a deep breath and went to leave the room. Before he left the room, all he'd said was, That's it. I'm done. He did not yell, nor did he show any normal human indicators of anger. His eyes did not narrow, his veins did not bulge, and his skin tone remained constant. But the crew member who made the remark, Keith, a fellow mantid, gave his statement earlier. He told me that after he made the joke, Stephen went from jovial and laughing to deathly silent and calm, like an ocean that was full of waves one moment, and then, like a glass mirror, the next. I was told that when this shift happened, the air itself seemed to stop circulating, and the room temperature seemed to have dropped by several degrees. Keith said that every alarm instinct that our species has developed over millions of years went off all at the same time, screaming at him to run, to hide, to cower, to freeze, to camouflage, to do something just to get away. He said it was thus though Stephen had suddenly turned into a ruthless, emotionless predator, in an instant, like some switch had been flipped. After that, Stephen just uh, vanished. Nobody saw where he went, and nobody has any clue where he may have gone. I've looked this up in Galactic Net, and there are other reports of similar behavior from the other humans. The end results are never good in these reports, however, so I hope that this is simply Stephen having gone someplace to relax. End log. Two weeks later, Galactic News. Breaking news! Galactic humanitarian crisis has been called for the mantid species. A new odd disease has occurred on their planet, making it so that the males of the species are no longer capable of growing out horns on their heads. While these horns are serve little purpose in modern society, they are a symbol of pride and style for most males of the species. This disease is only affecting this part of the mantibiology for some reason, and the males that have already grown horns are having them fall off. This disease has only just appeared, but has affected as an estimated 13% of mantid species as a whole already. We will continue covering information about this odd disease as more information comes up. Please consider donating on our official galactic website for research into this odd illness. Two hours later. Mel Stephen came back today with much more level head and apologized for abruptly leaving us weeks ago without a word. Given with his work ethic before, and the fact that getting a human engineer is harder than finding a needle in a damn gas giant these days, I forgave everything. He is now happily back as part of the crew as if nothing ever happened, with the exception 
The fact that Keith caught that odd sickness, making males hornless and unable to grow new ones. Though, on a personal note, he seems far more um, interesting without them. At the same time in the engineering quarters. Oh, uh, Keith, what happened? You can't grow some facial horns, hmm? Your face looks so bland without them. <laughs> ah, such a damn shame. Stephen said in a sing-song mocking voice that seemed to spit venom. Upon hearing this, Keith looked at Stephen in absolute terror as it suddenly clicked in his mind where his human compatriot had gone for two weeks. Keith stammered, You, you, I, uh, you did this? It was you who made this abominable disease because I made some damn jokes about your facial hair. Do you have any idea how many lives you've harmed for this, this petty revenge? Stephen shook his head and said, Uh, what's the matter? Are my jokes not funny? Do they hurt your pride, hmm? Does it sting knowing that you can't be a normal male and grow horns? See, Keith, this is what we humans call silent rage. I told you to stop with the jokes directly, indirectly, and every way I could fucking fathom. But you, you just wouldn't stop. And I know the captain wouldn't take my little complaint as anything seriously. Just some jokes amongst the crew. So I took some time off to visit a manted homeworld. Lovely this time of year, might I add. While I was there, I might have decided to practice a different field of engineering, specifically bioengineering. Now, maybe one or two samples of my work got out, but who's to say? I was in such a fit of rage, I simply forgot where I might have placed them. While saying all of this, a smile crept out in Stephen's face that would make the devil's own blood run cold and his eyes reflect an evil glint as he continued. Now, Keith, how about you don't mock my facial hair and I don't mock your horn problem, okay? Let's start over and get along in the future, shall we? End of story. Story number two, Forgiveness, written by Whiskey Lullaby. Railsign pulled his hood over his ears and kept his face low. The war between humans and elves had only been over for six months, and there were some still strong anti-elf sentiments in many human countries. Railsign could hardly blame them. His homeland had started the conflict, demanding concessions of land, and assured of their superiority. What followed was nearly a decade of slaughter. He himself had thought of humans as insects until just over a year ago. Blinded by propaganda and arrogance, he'd joined the Mage Corps to earn a name and titles, to become a hero. How distant those days were. The war had not gone the way that they were promised. Neither side won, fighting over the same ruined dirt and empty cities over and again. That had been his life, going from trench to trench, throwing all of his mana in as many elements as he could, spewing fire, electricity, and hurricane winds. Before long, he'd felt like a weapon, not a person. He fought on, hiding the realities of his crimes behind blind faith in his leaders and their lies. Then, he'd been wounded, left in a muddy shell crater among the dead. And then a human fell into the crater with him. He and the human had locked eyes, and while Rail Sign had reached for a knife, he found the human approaching with a bandage and a canteen. Drink, he said, in such a heavily accented elvish that Railsign had to hear it once more to be sure. The man was sharing his water. Railsign had been thirsty, his lips chapped and throat parched from hours of laying in the muck. The human then began to bandage him, giving him a reassuring grin and a nod. Then, a shout in elvish and the crack of a rifle. The human cried out, slumping over Railsign, and, for the first time, the elf looked into the face of his enemy. 
and truly saw him. A boy, less than a tenth of his age, perhaps a man to the humans, but a child to the long-lived elves. He'd been rescued then, pulled out of the muck by his fellows and sent home to recover. And shortly after came the ceasefire. Railsign had taken something, though, the human satchel. He'd spent his recovery studying the tongues of various human nations, trying to understand the letters and words in the documents the human had in his effects. Finally, he understood enough. A name, Moliger Jarek. Then the tears came, and he read the letters. Jarek was married recently. His child had been born not three months prior. His wedding ring sat in the satchel, along with his grandfather's stopwatch, a family heirloom. Railsign wept. No longer were the human faceless, murderous monsters. The lies he had told himself had crumbled. The lies he had been told shattered. He resolved himself then. He would travel to the address on this letter and return Jarek's effects to his family and take whatever punishment they could inflict. Honor, if he had any left, demanded it. Now he found himself outside a small home, a far cry from the grand architecture of his people, but somehow warmer, cozier. He knocked, swallowing hard. A woman answered, dressed in mourning clothes, with a baby on her hip. Railsign pulled back his hood, and in halting Tezerak said, I'm sorry, your husband died saving my life. He was shot because of me. He braced, closing his eyes and squaring his shoulders, holding out a satchel, everything put into place, as well as a hefty satchel of gold. He would not begin to cover his debt, and perhaps it could ensure Jarek's son's future. Railsign was ready for blows, for shouting, even to be killed. He was entirely unready to be enveloped in a soft embrace, nor to hear the words, Thank you. He looked up into the teary green eyes of the woman. He offered a fragile smile as she grasped his hand and led him inside. Then there he shared as best he could his encounter with Jarek, as his widow listened. His composure crumbled, and this gentlewoman comforted him, and said words he'd not known he yearned to hear. It is not your fault. He wept like a child, in the arms of a woman less than a tenth of his age. He spent the night there, at the insistence of the widow, and when he left, the world seemed brighter, like a veil had been lifted. The war still weighed on him, but forgiveness had given him the strength to continue onwards. Railsign would look over Jarek's family, using his power to help them, becoming something like an uncle to the dead man's son. He would also use his status as a war hero and a noble to influence diplomacy and relations between men and elves, hoping that as long as he lived, there would never be a repeat of this tragedy. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 peeps. Dragon Soup, Cold War Boomerwaffen, Severin Cerberus, Red Panda 121, Leslie 517, Bushmaster 177, Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Sans the Skeleton, Lightshock, Dragzoon WRE, and Lord Azricol. Thank you very much. The Angry Doctor, written by John Galt. Tippet swam along the narrow tunnel. Her tail snapping quickly behind her as she avoided the others in the cramped, claustrophobic space. She sucked in a breath and pushed through the gross, discoloured water of Nick Tar's exertion, 
holding on to the breath as long as she could until she was in reasonably clean water again. She grumbled back at the busy cave-like tunnel and glared at the glass, looking out of the water onto the main corridors of Terpsichore Station, where there was no water. Aliens strode out there on legs, in the open air with plenty of space. They didn't have to suck down everyone else's filth. Every person had a few cubic meters all to themselves, while she had to press to the glass to allow a school of ticks to pass. That does it. She's doing it. Screw the consequences. Tippet pushed her with her tail and drove herself down the tunnel, catching fresh water where she could. She flitted by cooking stalls, shops, and long lines of apartment doors. The angry doctor. People shied away from his laboratory, warning her, he is the devil, he is insane, but the miracles he had performed. Tippet glanced back in the dark water and twisted off into the side tubes. It was barely wide enough for her hips. She swam quickly. The water had poor circulation and she could barely get breath from it. She burst from the surface at the far end, her head bobbing above the surface and the floor of the angry doctor. It was a reception area, empty chairs sitting high above her in rows along the walls. A little rail sat around the hole in the floor where she had surfaced with a lid like clothes. She forced out of all the water in her mouth and inhaled the clean pure oxygen, rolling her tongue and jaw. She hummed a few times until it came out as a true clear note. Hello, she called out to the space. There was a humming tune that slowly grew louder. A human stood at the counter glancing at the empty chairs. Hello down there, she said. He glanced down at her, eyebrows rising high when he spotted her. Una tole tola, he said. It made no sense to her. A customer, was said immediately afterwards by a little box on a long white coat. And a fish, no less. She winced at the description. She thought to correct him, but maybe it was a language barrier thing. She was not a fish. She didn't lay eggs and could breathe air. Maybe his planet had no oceans. You, you do surgeries. You can give me legs. His eyes lit up, shining down at her as muscles pulled the sides of his face up into an impossible arc, white shining teeth showing his slit. Your language is nice, sir. Uh, you, you wish to be where the people are? She nodded, then went, yes. Not all people nodded for yes. He came around a bench and squatted down by the water, each chin resting on the don't-fall-in rail, eyes darting over her face like he was about to paint her. Warm-blooded, he said. The back of his fingers took her cheek. He raised her chin to look into closed gills on her neck. Carbon-based, he mused. He took her hand, his skin dry and oily, as he rubbed her fingers and looked closely at her palm. Iron-based blood, nerve sinew, and muscle tissue. You are nice, sir. Just good, great, nice, lovely, said the little box flatly. His voice, however, was anything but flat. It bubbled high and low and echoed itself, occasionally breaking off as a repeated bubbling ha escaped his lips. He cheered and sang many words while gesturing to the left. Enter, was all their box said. A chute opened beside her and she took in a deep breath, ducking below the surface and swimming in the direction he had pointed. Her ears popped when the door closed behind her. She swam along, turning upward until she entered a tiny space, a door seeding her in. She felt like she was in a test tube, and her heart started thundering with claustrophobia. The water drained suddenly, and the room fluoresced a bright purple. She writhed on the glass, struggling under her own weight. The room hummed with a bright ultraviolet light, her hands sweeping over the smooth, featureless glass around her. 
It suddenly dumped her out and she sucked in her breath before hitting water. It was tasteless. No salts, no phosphates, no air. She could barely feel it on her skin. She kept her head above the distilled water. Prepared, said the little box. He ran his arms through blades of UV light, his fingers dancing as they left the stream. I, I haven't paid or signed anything, she said. No money. Again, the translation seemed woefully short for how long he spoke. She was in a small tank, open to the air, of what looked like a clean room. Plastic sheeting lining the wall, screens flickered over as she recognized from the school as her own autonomy. Words she understood quickly changed to unfamiliar, left-aligned text. This was fine. It was natural to be scared of a surgical room. He wouldn't be on the station if he was any kind of threat, and he seemed genuinely excited to perform the surgery. He even seemed nice when his face wasn't split across the middle to reveal omnivorous teeth. He let out another bubbling slew of haas, each translator silent. She looked at the screen, following his stylus as he snapped the designed legs, peeling back muscles and anchoring them in places, attaching nerves. He was clearly an expert, and the result looked, uh, She would look like an alien that had evolved on land, able to walk high above the waves, to stride over the mountains and valleys of the surface. Tippett pushed down her nerves as he stared at her expectantly and nodded. He simply kept staring, his lips in a broad smile. She felt heavier, her legs falling in the slowly drained, distilled water. Her eyes struggled to remain open, trying to hold onto the world, black oozing down the walls around her until all she could see was a point of light and hear the thud of her head resting on a bench. Tippett's eyes flicked open. She startled awake, rising from the bench and lifting as she looked down at a pair of dead, lifeless legs. Anne closed her eyes and reached up to the thin band wrapped around her head like a crown. It worked, said a flat voice beside her. Relax. Nah, I can't feel them, she said. One moment, he said. She turned to see him wearing a band of his own head, a thick cord of signal wires plugged into it. He sat on a metal stool, flexing his leg forward and back, wriggling his foot about. Tippett began to feel tingles down her legs, and when she reached to scratch, her leg moved, seemingly with only a thought. She gasped, wiggling the five little toes on her new foot and turning back to face him, grinning broadly. He had a fresh scar on his throat. She was sure that wasn't there before. Speak, said the translator. He handed her a little page of her language. It was a song, so she began to sing. As the waves reached the roaches, she furrowed her brow. He nodded, tapping the page. She started to feel a metal brush below her leg, rolling her ankle and now the other. She shook off the strange sensations and continued reading the page. And the sun sets de She rolled her jaw, focusing hard on the page, but found she couldn't say the words. She scanned the line over and over each time. It made less sense. Allow me, he said. He said. The box chirped out words she recognized as her own, but she could not understand. He took the page. Your language is positively beautiful, he said. I can, I can understand you, she said, in what she somehow knew to be English. No brain damage, more good news. I mean, I'm a nice guy, but I just keep losing patience. Her eyes went wide. There was two distinctly different ways to interpret his words. She thought back to the strange symbols at the store that they had translated to the angry doctor, she remembered the shape and now she could understand the meaning, the mad scientist. 
You're a splendid creature. Oh, I could paint you for hours, but uh, where are my manners? You must heal and walk. His translator hummed out only three words, and she scowled at it. This is woefully inadequate and no longer necessary, he said, switching it off. Why can't I speak Nautic? As I explained, for art like this, I do not charge money. Splendida una bella lungo, he said. End of story. Delphi Station, written by Dr. Mantis Toboggan. Delphi Station, this is Captain Zigram, of the shadowy movement among the backdrop of stars, carrying Her Holiness Listener Mailbrass, reporting that we have successfully translated to Sublight. Welcome, Captain. Data packet four parking coordinates have been transmitted. We'll be over soon to pick up Her Holiness, responded the friendly voice of the station operator. To Zigram's surprise, it took over a second for them to receive the coordinates. Strange for the race with the greatest prediction power to wait until after the recipient had arrived before sending the data packet. He shrugged. Such musings were above his station. Shortly after, they stopped in an allotted section of space around the station. A small vessel docked with them. The technology employed by the humans once again surprised Zigram. Instead of predicting what kind of tech they would need to make successfully interface the two species airlocks, the humans had simply extended a tube from their shuttle to Zigram's ship, ensuring that it sealed well against his hull and pressurized it. For once, Zigram was happy that protocol demanded him to stay aboard the ship in case the hosts required it to be moved. He did not envy Malbrass's trip between ships, the only thing separating her from the void being a semi-transparent plastic sheet tube. Well, she foretold that he would survive the experience, the thought of it still frightened him. Mailbrass put one brave face on as she leapt from the comfortable gravity of a ship through the weightlessness-inducing tube all the way to the shuttle sent to pick her up. She wasn't sure what kind of game the humans were playing here. Were they forcing her to humiliate herself by testing her with peril to see if she would crack, or were they declaring that a race as weak as hers had no right to more lavish form of transportation? She pushed these thoughts to the back of her mind as she reached the airlock of the human shuttle. As the outer door closed and oxygen cycled back in, she remembered her mission here. First was to greet the humans, as this was the first meeting between their two civilizations since the end of the war. Second of all was to figure out how the humans surpassed her people. By the orrery, their FTL tech wasn't even a decade old. As the inner door opened, what she saw almost made her heart stop. One helmsman and two cards, all of them with a weapon on their hips. She briefly considered that they were here to assassinate her, and that this whole trip had been a lie. But then she remembered that the orrery and the choir both agreed that she would be safe this trip. She had nothing to worry about, as usual, and was happy to note that the shuttle had started moving towards the station. Hoping the humans didn't notice her fear, she stepped forward. Greetings, I am listener Malbras. Take me to your leader. Why the selected a chuckle from everyone aboard was a mystery to her. I apologize. Was there a translation error? Uh, no, listener, there wasn't. It's, uh, well, it's what we always said that the first alien we saw would say that. She nodded. It made sense, given how good their prediction must be. If only she knew how they made them. And how long ago was this prophecy recorded? The soldiers looked at each other for a second before one of them pulled some device from his pocket and tapped it a few times. Says here that it was already a popular saying by the 1960s. About 160 rotations of the planet around the sun ago. 
Malbras almost voided her bowels. After some mental mathematics, she realized that this was well over a galactic century ago. That she would step aboard the shuttle and say those exact words. She needed to be careful if she was to integrate herself with their predictors and learn how to bring their secrets to her people. A few minutes later, they were docking with a station, allegedly named after one of the human's greatest oracles. And what a station it was, bigger than a city back in Zybalsha, and absolutely flooded with people. As soon as she stepped out of the shuttle, she was greeted by a host of human soldiers, each pointing a device at her, and for a moment she was rooted in place by a mixture of worry and horror. Then the clicking and flashing started. The devices were like a wall of what humans called flashbangs, albeit much milder, and the clicking was akin to the fleshet weapons used in ritual duels. But instead of being riddled with projectiles of the humans used in war, she was instead treated to a light show, albeit one that slightly hurt if she stared at it. Her two escorts hurried her into an awaiting vehicle, and they moved off as soon as the door was closed. Apologies, listener. We should have warned you about the paparazzi. She simply nodded, unsure of what to make of it. She connected her pad to the station network and looked up the term her escort had used. Then her eyes nearly leapt out of the sockets. Apparently, the humans, with all their power, didn't use their precognition on matters other than war. While the general public had known she would arrive today, they didn't know when or where. Apparently, there had been a contest where people paid money to predict where and when she would arrive from, with the winner taking everyone else's money. While such methods were occasionally used to help Zalbillian children develop their abilities, the fact that adults were doing this seemed off to her. Surely it must be some kind of remedial class for late bloomers, she thought. After a short drive, they arrived at the government building in charge of the station's bureaucracy. She was escorted through more flashes, and they brought her to a waiting area, where an attendant brought her a tray of drinks. Greetings, leader. I've brought you a selection of drinks, all cleared with your medical staff. Would you care for water, tea, or something stronger? Melbras was offended by the suggestion that someone of her rank in the choir would ever consume something that would impair her predictions. Accepting the water, she waited for a meeting with the human leader, inspecting a human phrase carved into the wall above the large double doors leading into the office that she was about to be brought into. It wasn't a long wait, and soon she was led into a large and modestly decorated room where the human leader awaited her alongside some other dignitaries. At least nobody in this room was armed, compared to all the guards she had seen throughout the buildings. Greetings, listener. I am Suresh Nandari, leader of the station. This is President Bupindar Chandahari, leader of the nation of India, the parent state of the station. And these fine people are President Jane Washington of the United States of America, President Lang Jing of Taiwan, Chancellor Hans Michel Schmitz from the European Union, President Elena Vasilovich from the Russian Federation, Chairman Abayo Haramdi of the Pan-African Coalition, and Hamza Ibn Salim, representative of the Arabic corporate states, and Chairman Alagendro Miguel Iza of the South American League. The listener nodded and tried to remember the names as best she could, before giving up on a fifth person. Thank you. It is my great pleasure to finally meet you all, although this is not the first time our peoples have met. It brings me great joy to greet you all as friends during peacetime rather than wartime. We couldn't agree more, said the mayor to the station. Now we tried to sort out a schedule with your people, but they couldn't give us an exact timetable. Yeah, but this is what we think is best, but please tell us if you disagree. 
We thought we'd start with some photographs outside, then some speeches followed by some questions from the public, if you like. Don't worry, we've screened out anything inappropriate. Melbrus was sure the human was showing off. Not only had they predicted that everyone would ask and invited only the correct people, they'd somehow spent whatever resources necessary to predict the exact time of a speech to make sure the day ran smoothly. This only made the Melbrus more envious, as back in Zilbara, she'd simply have been told exactly how long her speech should be. That sounds perfect. Let me know when you're ready to begin. Oh, in a few minutes. We've brought some gifts for you first. But before all of that, one of your guards. Uh, I hope nobody was rude enough not to admit them. My guards? You know, the other Zilbillians, to make sure that you're not harmed or anything. Melbra struggled to understand the question. I haven't predicted anyone harming me on my trip. Why? Have you? The humans all laughed as if she was joking. Oh, how she hated their laughter at the implication that her predictions were meaningless. She tried to foretell when best time would be to approach them about perhaps helping her with her prediction methods. Looking through the strands of fate, she found that right now had a good chance of Sezeni. She finally asked the humans, So, how did you know? How did we know what? Asked the pale woman who ruled over the northeastern quadrant. How did you know where exactly you needed to attack to defeat the Zibarians? In that exact combination, with that exact number of troops and munitions. The leaders all looked at each other in confusion. Listener, I don't think we understand the question. For a brief second, it almost looked like they were being genuine. If they needed to embarrass itself by pointing out how much better the humans were at making predictions, before they would help her, so be it. How did your seers know where to send your military? How did you know to prepare for this war for over 30 years? And... What do we need to do to be as half as good as you? What do you mean, Sears? The dark-skinned woman from the northwestern continent asked. Malbrus decided to try a different approach. Could you, as if I were a mentally deficient child, walk me through the process by which you prepared for the and won the war? The leaders seemed shocked at this, almost as if they hadn't expected it. After a few moments, the heavyset man from the region in the center of the planetary map spoke. Well, your holiness, we are... Uh, we sent out a lot of probes into deep space, mining ships mostly, but some survey vessels. We found one of your ships, all souls lost, managed to figure out how your FTL and your communication systems worked, then send a message. Yes, I understand that part. What I don't understand is how you knew where to look. We didn't. It was pure chance. So you're telling me that you found that ship by accident, with no help from your seers or oracles? We, uh, we, we don't have any of those. Come again? Oh, we don't have seers or oracles. Well, we have some people who claim to know the future, but they're just con artists. Some companies made some predictive software that suggests future purchases to consumers. Is that what you mean? Uh, a mechanical seers. We, we haven't got that far yet, but it's to know we're going in the right direction. So how do they do it? They, uh, look at the past preferences and purchases and make guesses? Malbrus was stunned by the revelation. That's it. They just guessed, based in the past. Uh, yes. So then, if that's the best you have, how did you know you needed such a large fleet to fight the Zabarians? We didn't, replied the tanned man. So then how, by the blessed name of the oracles, did you have such a large fleet? Because we just did. Why? This time, the dark-skinned woman was the first to reply. In case we needed to defend ourselves from unfriendly neighbors. Before Malbrus could reply, the man representing the southeastern part of the world scoffed at her statement. Oh, please, Jane. 
We all know your military industrial complex is just a job program by another name. Don't blame me. It's not my fault the Appropriations Committee are such chicken shits that they succumb to the Rathion's threats about moving factories out of your home state. Mr. Congressman, we would hate for you to be responsible for unemployment and for us to have to fund your opponent's election campaign. But hey, at least the guns ended up being useful for something. Before the politicians could continue bickering, Melbrus interrupted. So, let me make sure I understand this. Not only did you have no idea that they were going to fight a war at any point in the future, you simply spent untold amounts of resources to amass weapons simply as a way to lower unemployment? No, of course not. The dark-skinned man responsible for the central landmass. It was also a deterrent, as well as a massive dick-swinging contest. A deterrent against who? screeched the listener. You weren't even aware of there were more races in the galaxy until you found that ship. The same man replied, as if the answer was obvious, Uh, against each other, of course. But you weren't at war with each other. Exactly, because of the deterrence. How do you prevent war amongst your people? Maldrus finally understood. This wasn't a show of power by superior civilization. This wasn't a grandiose reminder that the Zilbarians were inferior. These were a bunch of primates without any way to concretely determine the future. The guards were armed just because something might happen. They were surprised she came alone and unarmed because they had no idea she would live or die on this trip. The reason they allowed alcohol consumption amongst their people was because they didn't have any foresight to lose. They played guessing games simply because they didn't know what was going to happen. They were a sad race of blind, paranoid, lost imbeciles. Imbeciles who in their ignorance by pure chance managed to find her people, managed to reverse FTL in less than a galactic decade and destroyed the Zibarians. How did you win the war? Arden? The war. How did you win the war? How did you know where to send your fleets? What maneuvers to execute? Which plans to succeed? Uh, experience. Against who? Each other? She couldn't believe it when everyone in the room nodded. At least some had the decency to look sheepish. Then why did you even name the station after an oracle? Now everyone in the room seemed puzzled. Uh, what do you mean? Delphi Station. It's named after Oracle of Delphi, one of your seers. How can you claim that she was a fraud when you name a station after her? This time, it was the mayor of the station who spoke. The temple of the Oracle was built on top of a pocket of gas. She would inhale the vapors and experience drug-addled visions, and people back then would take these seriously. So, why name the station after her? It's not. There must be some issues with your translation, listener. It is named Delhi Station, not Delphi Station. It's named to remember the city of Delhi. Why? Because it got destroyed in a terrorist plot by fanatics using a series of nuclear weapons. We wish that we were seers and oracles, so that we could have prevented it from happening. We didn't. So now we look to the future so it doesn't happen again. Malbrus finally understood why the station had so many point defense turrets. Why these people had amassed such armaments of devastation. Why, unlike her people, who only prepared for war when they foretold it, the humans were always ready to kill millions at a moment's notice. She finally understood the letters carved above the door leading into the office. It is better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. End of story. Pig 4, written by Dark Prince 010. We have multiple incoming heat signatures from beyond the false planet. The Prophet Admiral Lilliker clenched both sets of claws behind him. They knew the humans were going to make a play eventually, and this world was directly in the path of their attempted push on his border of the skirmish between the two empires. 
But even then, he was taken aback at the sheer scale of the landing party senior. It appeared that there were hundreds of assault craft barreling towards the planet that he was entrusted to protect. And even he began to wonder if humans had truly come to such a desperate point that they were willing to throw so many millions of their own troops away, just for a single world. But then one of the sensor technicians spoke up. Sir, the initial high-frequency scans are returning non-human bodies morphages. It appears to be some sort of smaller vertebrate creature. I believe they call them uh, mammals? The Prophet Admiral furrowed his brow, two of the three sets of eyes squinting in confusion. Do you have any more details than that? he asked. The technician shook the head. Oh, sir, unfortunately there's enough biodiversity amongst the Terran database that we can't narrow it down to even within a few dozen species. The Prophet Admiral muttered a borderline blasphemous litany of religious hymns under his breath. Mostly, those involved the near-infinite array of frustrations a heathen could inflict upon a true believer. He turned to his gunnery station and barked out an order, Open fire! Brilliant blue and crimson streaks of light begin firing out at the incoming assault craft, vaporizing many hundreds of them well before they reached the ground. But still more and more landers came. He began to realize that they were not even seeing their initial crackling spatter from crude human attempts at ship shielding that would have helped a lander survive one, perhaps two shots from every gunnery batteries before succumbing. Instead, the unshielded landing craft were evaporating entirely under just a single round, becoming fine clouds of silver shimmering mist under the barrage. But still more and more assault craft began breaking through their screen through sheer force of numbers. He turned to the array of communications officers linked directly to the ground support platoons. Begin the preparation to rebel invasion. After a short moment of hesitation, he added, Full lethal force, sir. No prisoners or ammunition conserved. Not until you report to me what you are seeing and we can get a better idea of what we're up against. He received a series of acknowledgments through the holographic display. Then there was a long moment of waiting, and all he could do was hope this was not one of the more terrifying human creatures that they had decided to unleash upon this world. He'd only briefly looked through the few databases on humanity's homeworld and the glut of fauna present there, and he worried that humans had found some sort of way to sustainably produce assault legions of one of their larger predators, such as the titanic bears or the aggressive pack hunters like lions. Instead, the initial reports were confused and bemused as Zelliot captains reported back. The creatures are fleeing, sir, they are relatively small, no more than knee height, and they do not appear to possess any distinct weaponry. Indeed, as soon as we fired upon them, they fled into the scrub and forest, uploading Hollywood now. The Prophet Admiral could feel his confusion mounting as he saw the odd pink animals lacking fur, armored scales, or even visible teeth or claws. The creatures humans had sent to this world had simply fled offering not even the most cursory attempts at battle resistance and instead simply vanishing into the underbrush. One of the junior frequency technicians spoke up, her voice sounding like she was attempting to suppress a degree of mirth. Sir, those are what I believe the humans call uh, pigs. They're a livestock species, almost entirely harmless, and likely no threat from what I could remember from their records. The Prophet Admiral nodded slowly, but still gestured to his science officer. I want a full diagnostics on the potential threat capacity of these uh, pigs. I want to know what the hell the humans just unleashed on us. 
The report took only a few minutes to compile, and his science officer admitted that while there was some capacity for uncertainty given the translation of what human databases their spies had been able to steal earlier in the war, the greatest threat from pigs appeared to mostly be potential zoonotic diseases. The Prophet Admiral nodded, muttering a small prayer of gratitude to the distant science hierophants who had been so diligent months ago that they had ensured that their holy forces were well prepared and immunologically bolstered against the aggressively wide array of Terran diseases. The Prophet Admiral sat back in his chair, finally allowing himself to relax a degree. Well, if the humans were hoping to deliver some sort of living disease factors, they will find that we are more than prepared for any kind of plagues that they could attempt to muster. Five years later. It's a plague! I tell you, it's a plague! The Prophet Admiral waved for the wide-eyed engineer to sit and calm themselves. The engineer had been gesticulating wildly, waving a holopad representing a number of shaded areas that had sustained significant damage. It was the result of a power line disruptions and buried conduit ruptures all along the base of several outposts that supplied the anti-aircraft capacity in the sector of the continent. Now you're telling me that it was the pigs again, the engineer nodded, waving the datapad again. It's like something out of the Book of Damnations. We try everything to stop them. Poison, irritated spikes, laser defenses, everything and none of it works. They find the holes in our defenses and then they just dig and eat, he added dejectedly. The first time the Prophet Admiral had heard a report like this, he'd almost had the technician responsible investigated for potential psychosis. After all, how could a simple, albeit alien, livestock wreak such havoc? But the reports continued to build, again and again outlying how Exodus damned persistent the stupid animals were. He thought on the moment, mentally adding, not stupid, unfortunately, those things are in some cases more clever than some of the least gifted amongst my foot soldiers. They had tried traps, which had worked at first, until the pigs figured out how to recognize the traps. Then they tried poison, which worked, until the pigs learned to avoid or eat around the poison areas. They had tried bioviruses engineered to murder the animals, which worked, until the pigs simply adapted to smaller, more numerous family groups rather than larger herds. That also had the unfortunate side effect of also making eradication via cluster munitions less effective as well. A fact that the Prophet Admiral was not especially proud of. The entire time they ate, dug, defecated and reproduced. The forests of the primary continent were being stripped of almost all undergrowth. Local scientist acolytes were up in arms about the decimation of the native animal species. And he even received a report of an unattended infant left in an outdoor play zone being consumed by one pack of especially voracious pigs. That report had an accompanying surveillance hollow that both proved it was not a wide-eyed fabrication and nauseated the Prophet Admiral into skipping his scheduled meal for the rest of the planetary rotation. As he dismissed the engineer, he noticed the blinking icon for the comms link sent by one of their barracks ministers on the smaller part of the two continents. He opened it up, greeted the barracks minister with the normal salutations, before letting him get to the report. The barracks minister was clearly on edge as he reported that they had still not been able to locate and run to the ground any human saboteur team. They had landed approximately half a solar cycle ago, but they had managed to sneak in on a stealth-shielded shuttlecraft. Their own ground forces had since recovered, disassembled, and reverse-engineered the stealth technology on the shuttlecraft, and now all the sensors were all equipped to detect and remove any attempts to resupply the human strike team. Fortunately, their own biodiversity was rich in compounds which 
when compared to Terran physiology, were typically only found in rotten and decaying organic material. As a result, many attempts by the humans to forage for supplies should have been met with abject failure, and their shuttlecraft was barely large enough for the humans themselves, and certainly not large enough to contain months of supplies. And yet, nevertheless, they had still had sightings and damage reports indicating a pattern of the human striking at critical infrastructure and defense installations. The barracks minister sighed, and with one set of arms gestured and brought up an image for the Prophet Admiral. We have figured out how the Terran saboteurs have managed to persist on our world for so long, despite there being nothing for them to eat here. Unfortunately, it seems like that was what the pigs were for. The image displayed a smothered cook fire, and the well-picked-over remains of a slaughtered pig. There was also a small wedge of plant bark that had some dark, squiggly black markings on it. The Prophet Admiral recognized it as being a Terran writing, a very inefficient and poorly structured system that took his visual translator multiple long moments to decode. Finally, it spat out an approximation of what the message contained. Greetings! Thanks again for the... And here the word was a direct human translated pronounced. Bay can. It was delicious, and we're real glad to see there are plenty more of it. We kindly remind you that terms of a ceasefire have been offered, and we strongly encourage you to accept the terms, lest we need to continue making a mess down here, blowing up your... Another word that effectively translated as a slur for fecal matter. And having some damn good barbecue. Yours truly, those pains in your... Another slur, this time for the posterior region. The Prophet Admiral rubbed above his eye sockets and leaned back in his worn chair. In the past solar cycle alone, they had received a dozen similar reports of other planets being invaded by dropships containing nothing but thousands upon thousands of pigs. It was going to be a very long war. End of story. What do you mean humans raised their ships? Written by Captain Candy. How in the name of the void are these human ships so... so... Uh, versatile? <sighs> you know what I mean. A single human ship seems to be able to do everything from battle right up through to colonization and terraforming. How do they do that? Techno, a fusion reaction engineer from the Technocratic Alliance, asked his friend. Clutch, from the Biopurity Alliance. Clutch let out a low, drawn-out laugh when he heard the question. It was one he had wondered himself for years, but the answer had not been what he had expected. Now, he had a chance to regale someone else with this wild tale. Well, uh, Jekna, I do in fact have an answer for you, but it may not be the one that you quite enjoy, and in fact, uh, if you are anything like me, it will make you rather upset at the blasphemous nature of it. You see, they raise their ships like we in the Biopurity Alliance do. Their ships are both living and not. They raise their ships. What do you mean that the humans raise their ships? They are clearly technologically based. Armored titans of unrivaled firepower and sophistication. I've been inside of them. They are the furthest thing from bioships than I could imagine, screamed Techna, now getting at his attention of most of the bar. Clutch shook his head slowly and explained in his low, drawling voice. I guess the old bar will get you going to a frenzy. All right, anyone listening, you needn't eavesdrop. Pull up a chair and somebody buy me a drink. 
something good and strong, and I will tell you the tale. Clutch barely finished the sentence before a strong band of earth-brewed amber liquid was placed in front of him. Seeing this, he smiled and truly started his story. Okay, well, let's start at the basics that everyone here knows. Eventually, a species reaches a point in their technological development where they need to make a choice and specialization. Well... The humans were approaching this point in the early 2020s by their calendar. They were really beginning to understand quantum sciences to a degree where they could finally make the most basic computer systems with it. It was at this point that two sides of this great council alliance sent envoys to the humans. Many species, when they understand they need to take a risk and specialize, go into planet-wide war over the ideology of what weighs better. They are always dozens of ideas and specializations, but they all boil down to uh, two options. Do we go forwards as a biological race with genetic manipulation and perfecting our biology to explore the gulf of space and achieve everlasting life? Or do we specialize our technology to the point where we become veritable machine gods that can, through a widely different means, do all the same things as the biologicals? So, in an effort to stop this war before it began, the Council sent two envoys, one from both sides of this belief. These two envoys landed in front of a place called the United Nations, but before Terra became a unified whole with their selective hive mind bullshit, but I'm getting off track here, they landed in front of the United Nations, a gathering place for all the world's leaders at the time. They waited specifically for a meeting to be held so they could show themselves to the entire planet at once. They hijacked Earth's satellites and broadcast it to the old planet, taking over the telecommunications network as well. Then they strolled in, in full view of the entire planet. The entire United Nations representatives had a collective uh, panic attack. Apparently, the representatives sent were sent in an understanding that they looked like things from human media and mythology. Unfortunately... The council member who looked into these media sources was lazy. As a result, I'm sure you've all heard of the human first contact incident. The biopurists look like what the humans call a Yogg-Sothoth, and all-seeing multidimensional horror from something called a Lovecraft mythos. The technocratic counterpart looked like something the humans called Daleks, a machine race spell-bent on the extermination of every other life form in the universe, thinking themselves absolutely superior. Both of these were things that the humans were in one way or another terrified of. Thank the void that the envoys had a shielding that they did, so even the best human weapons at the time couldn't hurt them. After everyone calmed down and stopped panicking, the biopurist spoke up first. Before anything, he explained that he was an envoy from a council from space and not the Shogsothoth creature that they were so all horrified by, and that the technocratic member was not a Dalek. 
Well, the second part was odd because their species name was literally the Dalek, which raised a lot of questions in a lot of places. Now, once everyone was calm, the biopurist slowly explained that they were from an alien council of species who had made it beyond the bounds of the star. They told the humans why they were chosen to go there, and everyone's panic lessened a great deal. Once the room was finally fully calmed down, the technocratic envoy spoke up and sent out a hologram to the middle of the room. He told them all about how they were on a precipice of a choice, showed footage of thousands of alien wars happening simultaneously, and told the humans that the council didn't wish to see another species go to war over this. That's why they sent an envoy from both sides, to show that two sides worked together and even had strong alliances in the end anyway. And the path didn't really matter at all. It was just a choice. The effect this had was uh, not as we had expected. An impatient member listening in cut Clutch off and asked, What does that have to do with the human ships? I thought this was about how they raised them or something, despite being clearly technological in nature. Clutch chuckled and continued. <laughs> the effect was uh, not what we expected. We thought the humans would put it to a vote, and in this, they did. But they did not vote for technology or biology. They voted on whether or not to merge the two. Eventually, the vote ended weeks later, and as a result, the humans chose a biotechnocratic system. They decided that they would both perfect their biology and use machines to reinforce it. They called these implants and augments. Now... These aren't unheard of in the technocratic states, but the humans took it to a new height. They perfected their genome, and then put templates in their bodies that cells could replicate, and so that their bodies would never deviate from a perfect state. They made genetic editing common, showed that they could take on a variety of traits and forms on a womb, but also added a brain implant to control the mutations and edits, not through external means, they would literally and still do wake up some mornings and decide brown hair isn't stylish anymore, and they want to make it purple. So the implant in the head sends a signal out to the bio-templates and the bodies to change their cellular structure enough for the change to occur. You would think this act of gene manipulation would hurt, right? Nope. The humans made it so it releases pleasure chemicals in the brains when they do it, and it happens over 24 hours so there is no discomfort at all. These are a couple examples I have, but the point is clear. They found a third way, a way to fuse technology and flesh and have it seem wholly natural. If you look at any human now from the outside, they look like humans did 500 void damned years ago. But inside, they are true marvels of biology and technology. A perfect balance of both in a way that shows neither. Now, this extends to the rest of human society too, they decided. Hey, what if we raise bioships that grow metal shells naturally? Oh, and what if we gave these bioships life stages? This led to all kinds of headaches for the whole council, and eventually they decided the information would be suppressed. Not made classified or anything, just not spread around. 
Hearing this, the entire bar erupted into cries of outrage and blasphemy, and it seemed like the flash mob might just ignite. Letting out a sigh, Clutch then took in a deep breath and hollered over everyone at a volume that physically shook the whole bar. Shut the hell up and let me finish! After the bottles and glasses stopped clanking and everything was dead quiet, he continued. Now then, like I said, they took this balance of biology and technology to every part of their society. They decided that their spaceships would be life companions to every last human on Earth. They start small and are essentially born at the same time as a human infant is. The ship will accompany the human the whole life. The two of them connected via a brain implants they have. In this way, no human is ever actually alone. As the humans and the ships grow up, they slowly decide their course of life. Do they want to go explore space or stay in their planet of birth? If they go to space, what do they want to do? If they stay planet bound, also, what do they want to do? Human ships can selectively metamorphosize. They can choose traits together with their human bond partner and then undergo metamorphosis similar to an Earth caterpillar. The human ships will do this a total of five times in their life. Once when the human that they are bound to learns to walk, again when they start going to school, again when they hit puberty, once more when they graduate from schooling, and finally when the humans and the ship decide what they want to do for a living. This is why human ships can be seen to do everything, because they fucking can. Learning this is the exact reason I started drinking. This is also the reason why humans are slowly but surely taking over a central role as the council's mediators between the technocratic parts of the council and the biopurists. It's worth noting that much like the humans, their ships can also decide just to alter themselves one morning, and the same ship that you were on yesterday will have its corridors slowly shift and change over the course of the next day. The reason they look technological, that is their shell to protect their biological components. You will only find two vulnerabilities in the shell. One where the ship eats from internals and the other... The best left unsaid. These ships have a metal shells. They can metabolize any ore and use that to break it down into pure metals or even alloys somehow and create these shells. Human ships can also have technological components mounted or grow biological ones. Some human ships have gravimetric weapons or drives, for example, while others have biomissiles made of steel and iron propelled by waste and slip into fourth-dimensional space through some confoundingly complex biological organ. Unless you atomize both of them, the human and the ship has a neural backup of the other, and they will come back later with a fucking vengeance. End of chapter. Why Won't They Just Die? Written by Vivid Membership 3959. It was another mission of exterminating another species. These humans were another illness in the universe that must be eliminated. Luckily for us, they were trusting. So trusting that they just provided us their biological details. We were humored by their diplomatic requests. We pretended to agree as we sent a ship filled with the pesticide that would choke out their atmosphere with a poisonous chemical. It 
was as simple as usual. All the humans on the surface were choked out from the chemical mixture without us having to lift a finger. Another ship was sent with another dropship filled with the neutralizer along with another ship filled with a few million soldiers to neutralize any humans who somehow survived. Our plans for an easy conquest were ended when we lost contact with our troops. We thought there was just an unfortunate incident. Maybe the landing systems just failed. So we organized another landing. When they arrived, they discovered a few lights in the night. However, yet again, they lost contact as soon as they sent a single message about some older chemical rockets coming up to meet them. That was concerning, because the humans were talking about their chemical rockets and their hope for a peaceful communication before our first attack. Yet, we still didn't want to waste too many resources for a conventional war. So we sent a slightly larger fleet of two ships and another poison container. However, we got good news that one of the two ships we thought to have been lost was seen in orbit docked to what looked to be a primitive space station. They transmitted a single message before once more their signal cut out. There are humans boarding the ship. They are wearing armor that we can't seem to penetrate, requesting permission to... This is Earth, you alien scum! Later translated by one of our experts. After that, the transmission cut out, and we decided that Earth wasn't worth the struggle. We disabled the warp drives of the ship remotely, and figured that that was the end of it. We were wrong. USSS Henry, M. Jackson, six months prior. They have taken us for fools. The air on the surface of our home planet is now unlivable hell, killing whoever is not in a submarine or a few bunkers that some people chose to build. All of the submarines left on the planet have moved to designated positions around the Atlantic and Pacific to decide what to do. Our radios were manually made weaker as the submarines gathered together. Almost immediately, every submarine sent the message, permission to launch payload. Somehow, our ship had become the new capital of our rebellion. Luckily, the aliens have not shot down most of our satellites, probably planning on using them. But what was more surprising, that the ISS was still sending signals to us where we were still responding. They were telling us what we knew. The planet's atmosphere had become poisonous and all transmissions have ended from all stations around the planet, excluding a few bunkers from fallout bunkers. All of a sudden, two new ships appeared in orbit, making the ISS end all communications immediately. One of the two ships landed first and started to undo the damage that they had done. The second ship looked to be a troop transport which was uh, concerning. After a significant debate, the order was made to launch a missile as soon as it lands, wherever that may be. A few weeks later, there was a new crater in what was San Francisco. The fleet in the Pacific went to investigate what remains of the ship, where we went to investigate the landed cure ship. It was in good condition. Both its atmosphere engine and what would be discovered to be its warp drive was intact. We took it to what remains of Washington, where we have made it into our main base mostly as a way to improve morale. Eventually, after a few months, another ship came and we launched a modified missile. This time, it was made to only break through the non-existent armor. It was almost as if it hadn't had to engage in combat for what might have been forever. We were going to make them learn the hard way, the human way, and the way that would make them regret what they did. UN ship, the Enterprise, 29 months later. They deactivated their own ships, thinking that they could ignore their consequences. They didn't think about the cure ship's cause. 
However, we were not them. Any of the crew that surrendered were imprisoned and treated with the dignity our species wished to have been. Eventually, we were able to translate between the prisoners, and they asked us why we were letting them live. Our response became engraved in the history books. We are humans and we came in peace. It is now your choice to stand down in peace. A few of them gave up some information about what they knew, requesting that we would be willing to spare their lives. That would depend on how their government would respond. We have learned where the capital planet was. Earth would be given its revenge, and they would be choosing how it happens. The Grand Council The humans have arrived with a single ship. Despite them somehow knowing where our capital planet was, we were not scared of this bluff. We told them as much to a single response sent from their ship. The last one we ever read. You have awoken a people's rage that has already waking from its slumber. You have only fanned the flames of fire that will soon consume you and what will remain of your empire in the aftermath. After that, we detected they added missiles to their crafts. Only that's a lot of missiles. Thousands of missiles were launched from the ship. We couldn't intercept them all. And even more unfortunately for us, humans had nuclear weapons. That was the end of not only us, but our empire. Because those damn humans couldn't die. End of story. Story number two. We did it, but others told us to. Written by Captain Keys123. We thought it would be fun. Wars were always civilized business after all. It was supposed to be grand, sweeping, and romantic. Two armies would clash, and there would be lots of daring do. And once the grand conflict was over, that was that. You didn't hold the grudge. It was a relief from the boredom of jobs at home. You got done, shook hands, picked up the dead, and that was that. We didn't have a quarrel with the other male. This was between our bosses, see? It was the way of things. We challenge a dominant power to see who is better. We were just following orders. We took their Jupiter bases and wondered what all the hubbub was about further inward. Something about the targets we hit. I didn't understand. Sure, the bases didn't have any weapons, but this was war. We were doing our jobs. They opened up on us at the asteroid belt with a hundred megawatt transportation lasers and massive drivers. We didn't expect that. This was supposed to be civilized. They made us fight our way through the belt forcing us to lose 10 fighters for every kilometer of space. They were using civilian equipment against us. Those lasers were for high-speed transportation. Those mash drivers were for cargo delivery. Why would they not just use proper warships? We were just doing our jobs. The Martian colony. Here we thought it would be a grand, decisive battle. They would throw dozens of ships against us. They used their megawatt lasers and the mash drivers. Their reaction drives burned out anything that could close. They screamed they hated us and we didn't understand. We were just doing our jobs. We dropped bombs on their colonies. We seized their stations. We took them fair and square. But they were savage. Our troops landed and they were gunned down by heavy machine guns. Machine guns designed hundreds of years ago. And their designs had stayed the same. Their rifles and tanks were certainly different, but that machine gun, that Browning, had stayed the same. And 
They screamed at us. They called in close air support. They planted mines. They did everything they could to bleed us dry. We destroyed what the officers said to. We blew up domes. We destroyed train lines. Even those that had nothing to do with the war effort. So what? What's that got to do with us? We did it. But others ordered us to. And isn't it our right as conquerors? We were just doing our jobs. And their anger only grew worse. As we moved, they continued to throw everything they had at us. Soldiers sacrificed themselves so that their fellows could retreat in good order. They did those kamikaze runs they are so proud of. And the prisoners were angry. We gave them supplies and still they cursed us. We tried to be nice to compliment them on their skill. And they were silent. They called it an interrogation. We called it a friendly chats. Why do you force us to destroy so much expensive material? Damage to private property is very uncouth, you know. It's very expensive. You bombed civilian targets! The fighter pilot snapped at us. What the fuck are you talking about? Your people use private machinery rather than weapons to fight us well. You do both, but that's beside the point. We didn't hide troops in civilian domes, the pilot shouted. That was not my fault. We did what we were ordered to. It was not my doing. The commander simply felt a sure force was necessary, and we carried out directives of our superiors. Necessary? You son of a... We had to restrain her then. What inspires this loyalty? I demanded. You fight as though more depends on you than your life. What demands high sacrifice? If it means beating baby killers, she snarled. Her head pinned by one of the soldiers. She managed to move it. We'll throw everything we've got at you. Someday we'll defeat you, and then you'll see who's laughing. I was flummoxed. Why do you do this? Why do you fight so hard? You're only doing your job. She seemed confused by that. Of course I am. I knelt down to where three of my soldiers held her. Yes, so why fight so hard? Why do you defy us like that? Why do you make us kill and destroy private property? She seemed baffled. What do you mean? I fight because I'm part of the UN Defense Force. Why else? But you don't need to fight this hard. We fight, one of us loses, we shake hands. That's war. She looked befuddled. The fuck is wrong with you, bug? What kind of war is that? Sounds like a slap fight. I tried to dumb it down for her. You plant mines, you set up traps, you crash your ships into ours. What kind of war is that? What inspires this loyalty? This desire to sacrifice so much? You are but an employee of your masters. They demand no less than you doing your job and no more. You do not need to go beyond. She confusedly said, Because that's war, idiot. By the time we reached the lunar perimeter, our forces were battled beyond belief. Forces were still fighting over Mars and Mercury, and Venus attacks had been blunted. We finally encountered their war fleet. Many of the ships were barely finished. They had been pulled out of dockyards, still with workers aboard. Why was that? Our leader hailed their admiral. He congratulated them on their clever tactics and admonished them for their unsavory techniques. He gave them a list of booty to recover, requested a refuel, and gave them the time frame for when we would be on our way. The war was over. We'd made it to their homeworld. This is how a great competitive wars always were done. Something. But this confused the Admiral. This isn't a game, they spat. War isn't defending dots on a map. It's death. Vast, organized debt. 
Are you telling me that you came all this way for fun? No, we came here to see who is better. That's the same thing. No, it isn't, our leader said dismissively. He paused. Tell me, what inspires this loyalty in you? Aren't you just doing your jobs? What? You're just following orders, so are we. What inspires this unthinking, undying loyalty? You're just following orders, as all civilized beings should. We are just following orders. The comm line went dead. The humans unleashed a terrible display of firepower. They had learned a long time ago that loyalty is not simple difference, and that war is more than just orders. It is not romantic. War is not a game to them. End of story. Humans have magic, written by Random3x. Flint was going about his duties for the day, and had just reached the point where he was meant to take his scheduled break. Entering the vessel of the ship, he looked around at a few other crew members who were seated about the room. In the corner was a crew member that caught his eye. He was a human. He had clearly finished his meal and seemed to be doing something with his tentacle clusters. The things the humans called hands. Wondering what he was doing, Glint glided over towards the human. Hello, fellow Griptak. Seeing you during this rest period is a pleasure. May I ask, what are you doing? Looking up at Glint, the human arced a brow. Glint knew this to be a sign of heightened attention for the race. However, the reason behind the attention was unknown to him. Oh, hey Glint, uh, uh not sure what a grip tack is, but uh, I was just practicing something, he replied, holding up a coin in his left hand for Glint to see. Hey, coin? Yeah, you know what? This is perfect. Always best to try it on an audience. An audience? Glint parroted, becoming increasingly confused. Okay, watch the coin carefully, the human said as he held it between his left thumb and forefinger. A nice, normal coin, right? Glint looked at the coin and nodded, a gesture that he had learnt in his interspecies communications lessons. Yes, that seems rather normal. Now watch this. Cupping his right hand around the coin, the human clearly took coin from his pinched fingers. Following where the coin was, curious about where it was going, Glint continued to watch, only for the human to shake his hand and then open it. Looking up to where the coin should have flown, Glint was shocked that nothing flew out of his hand. Where did, did the coin go? How did you do that? What is this? The human grinned at that rapid-fire questions before looking up. Following the human's gaze, Glint could see his eyes darting around as if he's searching for something. With a flash of movement that startled Glint, the human thrust out his hand and made a fist. Here it is, the human said with a smile as he opened his hand to reveal the coin. How? Cool, right? Always liked doing little magic tricks since I was a kid. The human explained as he wove his fingers together and flapped his hands in a gesture from Glint's race to indicate a simple matter. Magic? Wait, wait, wait. Do, do humans have magic? I, I was under the impression magic was merely a fantasy. Huh? The human tilted his head in confusion. It is. This is just a simple trick. It's for amusement. No actual magic is required. We just called it magic trick because it seems like it's magical. I refuse to believe that. You had the coin and made it vanish, Glint pointed out. It was just sleight of hand, the human explained, wiggling his tentacle clusters. We humans can be dexterous, 
So to amuse ourselves, we develop things to do with our hands and fingers. I still refuse to believe that this is not actual magic. Explain how the trick is done. It's a rule a magician never reveals his secrets. Are there other displays of this magic then? Oh, uh, lots of tricks. More than just coins and cards. The most famous one is probably cutting a woman in half. Glint's face immediately flushed with warning colors. I knew your race was bloodthirsty, but to cut a woman in half for amusement is beyond anything civilized. Glint, the human let out a long exhale. Glint knew this meant that the human was exasperated. It's a trick. The way it works is a woman is just put in a box. The magician uses something to cut her in half and moves the two halves of the box apart. There is no blood or guts. A clean act of murder is still murder. Glint, the act ends when the magician pushes the boxes back together and the woman is unharmed. Truly, by the Kralthor, I feel I must study this further. Glint, the human paused before tapping a few buttons on his datapad. I just sent you a book. It'll need some translation, obviously, but the images can help you understand. It is how to do simple tricks. You would share such a treasured secret knowledge with me, an outsider. Glint, the never reveal secrets is just a performance thing. It keeps the wonder alive. Part of the fun of magic trick is someone trying to work out how it's done. I see. I must admit that I am overly intrigued myself. Tis a fun hobby. The human paused to look at his watch. Oh, that's my breakup. Have a good lunch, Glint. Glint sat down at the table, and now he had a tray of some food on it. However, he was more focused on the spoon in his gripper. The most straightforward trick in the holy text the human had given him showed how to easily bend a spoon. End of story. Story number two. We could have been friends, written by Captain Candy. To the Galactic Senate, from the United Terrans. This letter will be addressed to all of you. Now we, humanity, know that you wouldn't read this letter if not for the extraordinary circumstances of its sending. We know you would have ignored it if we didn't warp it into the center of your council room during a full attendance meeting. So, we did just that. Now it has been almost 100 of our years since you lot decided that you didn't like us. So allow me to inform you in this letter, the newer council members, who we are and what you all did. About 100 years ago, one of your scouts found our home, Earth. You saw us, classified our world according to your own standards and beliefs, and found our world to be an anomaly-class planet. You thought the planetary collision that created our moon should have shattered both worlds, making a third asteroid belt. You thought that our gravity should be too high for us to ever dream of leaving the planet and ascending to the stars. You thought that life from our planet, from microbial to megafauna and fauna, shouldn't even allow for sentience to arrive on it. Well, you all thought wrong, apparently. And when you found our little world and found us breaking every law of biology and planetary physics that you thought you knew, you took offense to that. So your little scout ship panicked, and probably in its panic nearly burned out its FTL drive to report our presence. Then, the Council of the Time declared us a threat to all galactic life, and sent an extermination fleet to our planet. Shame that we already had sent out generation ships, isn't it? Otherwise, when you cracked our planet in half, you probably would have killed us all off. 
Thank goodness you didn't, and thank goodness you didn't think to look at how advanced our various fields of science were. If you had, you would have realized we figured out instant communication across any distance a decade ago. When you cracked our planet in half by sending out a gravimetric pulse to push our moon towards us at 500 kilometers per second, we were informed instantaneously on live news media. Now, if we were just a few measly generation ships, no harm, no foul, right? Well, you would be right, but humanity always did a little extra. Just how we survived on our anomalous little ball of death, I suppose. By the time you cracked our planet like a chestnut, we had sent out a few dozen colony ships. All of us in contact with each other, by the way. Each of us carries one part or another of human civilization on our ships. One carried every known plant genome from Earth. Another, every animal genome. One carried all mankind's pawn. Good old ship 34. The point being that each ship carried a full part of mankind's legacy. And with our communications network not caring about distance, you can see where I'm going. We lost only two things when you destroyed our planet. One, we lost our homeworld and all of our families. Two, we lost our mercy. You showed us that every race in the galaxy, out of fear, spite, jealousy, and probably a few other emotions, would want to kill us, to wipe us out and every human you can find. Now, we have not one planet, but 39 and we have had a hundred years to develop each world and advance our science in the process. Each planet focuses on a specific field of research too, so you can imagine the kind of progress we made. When we were divided on Earth, our rate of advancement already terrified you, counselors. Now we have whole planets dedicated to specific fields and branches of science. Our population took a while to bring back up, but we've shored up the numbers. Our population is now even greater than it was on Earth. We have a full 40 billion humans, each and every one of them willing to take up arms against you. Now, I wouldn't tell you the kinds of things that we've learned. Well, at least not all of them. Need to save some simple surprises for you, after all. Wouldn't be very fun exterminators without that, would it? What I can say in this letter is we've got teleportation by the gonads, and our ballistic weapons don't use explosive propellants anymore. Hell. If you see one of our ballistics, you're probably going to be losing whatever moon or planet we aim that son of a bitch at. You showed us gravity weapons are a thing, and Earth, in her death throes, sent us every reading they got from your little gravity pulse. Our material sciences is the kind of crap you hear about in old Earth mythologies now too. Seriously, you guys pretty much helped us advance a few thousand years by focusing us all. That was a big fecking mistake. Now this isn't the worst part, though. The worst part is that you guys didn't have to do what you did. Again, if you bothered to look at the data that we sent all over our planet in radio waves, plain for anyone to look at, decode, and watch or listen to, you would have learned something. We, humanity, felt alone for a long, long time. We desperately wanted to know if we were alone in this galaxy, in this universe. We didn't have to become life or death enemies, you know. We could have formed an alliance. Our combined militaries and sciences could have formed a golden age for the whole Milky Way galaxy. We could have tamed the whole star clusters together, gone to grand business ventures, terraformed acid worlds. We could have researched together and unlocked biological immortality and eliminated disease from every sentient in the galaxy. 
We were so desperate to just not be alone, and we would have done anything to prove that we could have been business partners, to be healers and scientists, to help all life in this galaxy. But more than all of this, you chose to try and exterminate us when we could have been friends. See you real soon. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 peeps. Dragon Soup, Cold War Boomerwaffen, Severin Cerberus, Red Panda 121, Leslie 517, Bushmaster 177, Casper Arnold, Cam Maxwell, Sans the Skeleton, Lightjock, Dragzoon WRE, and Lord Azrakal. Thank you very much.